Welcome to episode 113 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Jeff Atwood, co-founder of Stack Overflow and prolific blogger on CodingHorror.com. Hey, Jeff, welcome to The Zing. Hey, thanks for having me. Jeff, it's a, it's a real pleasure having you on. I, I was a big fan of the Stack Overflow podcast, so um, it's, uh, it's cool to be able to talk to you in person. On, I mean, on Texting, we do tend to amble around in all sorts of directions. Uh, but we were thinking what would be cool is on this show will be to start with a little bit of the back history of uh, Jeff Atwood, stuff that people may not necessarily know. For example, you know, how did you get into coding and tech and blogging and startups? Where did it all start? Well, I think uh, for me, like with a lot of programmers, it, it was my dad that was kind of insisting that I, rather than buying a game console, I had to have a, a computer. Uh, and it was the Texas Instruments TI 99.4A. Okay. If anyone remembers that. And, uh, and that was sort of my first window into, into programming was, you know, rather than getting a game console, I had this machine that I had to, you know, write commands in to make games. And, How old were you at that time? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. I was in maybe sixth grade. I was pretty young. Jason's just starting uh, uh, thinking about getting his kid into coding as well. Yeah, well, I'm not really. I mean, he's six. I just... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just uh, was teaching a little HTML for the fun of it because he was really excited about using a computer, but uh, that's about it. <laughs> so anyway, go yeah. on with the story. Yeah, well, that's an interesting uh, angle because, you know, I have a two-year-old and who knows what kinds of things he's going to be into. Uh, I often wonder if, he, you know, he's going to be a jock just just to be, you know, contrary for his old man. <laughs> you know, I'm all into <laughs> computers and he's going to be like, no, 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 let's play football, let's go outside, let's, you know. Well, for, for for Jason's kids, it's confusing because Jason is both a jock and a coder geek. Oh, nice. So you have all, <laughs> right, right. all the so. angles covered there. I'm fine either way. And I, I think gaming is a really strong vector. I think there's always been a really strong overlap between you know, people who play games and people who program. Not always, but it's a pretty common pattern um, that you sort of want to start creating these things that you're enjoying. And I think the act of creating is pretty powerful, so... But I think there's so many more ways to to manifest that now too. I mean, well, it'd be pretty games. hard to it'd, it'd be pretty hard to pick that up now because the games are so sophisticated. It's like going and watching a movie and say, "Hey, I want to make one of those." You know, I mean, it's not like making Space Invaders anymore. Yeah, but I think the creativity act aspect of play is is quite important. Like in say an example, like you know, Little Big Planet, where you're creating levels, um, games where you're sort of creating things as part of the gameplay. Because that's what programming is, you know, it's, it's, it's creating things and the joy of, you know, wouldn't it be cool if, if I had this universe where I controlled everything and I could do X? Well, that's really the computer in a nutshell. So, you know, I, I think it's fun. And um, Well, I mean, as, as you were kind of getting into it, when did you do, what, what sort of age did something interesting start happening where you created something useful? Oh, gosh, I don't think I, I define useful. <laughs> <laughs> like I think okay. we go our whole lives without sometimes creating things that are quote unquote useful. So um Yeah, good point. I, okay, something that was like um 
Something I, I other than typing in, uh, a, you know, because you'd read those, um, there'd be a magazine on coding and they'd say, here, type in these 50 lines and you have a little game or something, right? You actually create something of your own, I guess, would probably be a, is that yeah, more like what you're getting at? That's a better way of putting, yeah, yeah. That's a good point because, yeah, there are the recipes. That's, that's a very good point. Those, those early books about, you know, here's a game, you know, here's, how, here's a golf game. Here's, there's certainly a phase where you're sort of duplicating things that, that other people have done. That's a great point. And then you start, you start sort of like slightly modifying them to make them cooler or sillier, or, you know. So, yeah. It's funny how it's games that we all start with. Well, I mean, I guess I'm just completely generalizing, but that was my experience of creating that little game where you had the, you're driving a car down a road and you make the little bricks on the left-hand side and the right-hand side and you well, make I mean, it randomly move to the left and the right. What are you going to ca- ca- uh, create, like an, an, uh, an accounting ledger? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Good point. And the most boring child in the world, like you create this like, double-entry accounting game. So, okay. <laughs> so uh, but you remember how those, those little recipes... They'd have little programs. They'd have like peek and poke and pop and, and to make sounds. And, and it was so strange because there was no real documentation on it. They're like, well, where the hell is this guy getting this number from? Peak 27589. It would make like a sound. Or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, and the characters, the characters printing out as well. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that for, for a lot of kids now, I, I hope that like JavaScript and, and maybe the canvas tag is sort of similar to that where... You know, that's that's the the universal sort of programming language. Before it was like basic that was built into the, the ROM of most computers, uh, early computers anyway, that whenever you booted them up, there was always, you, you would boot into this command prompt, right? That was like this blinking curse that was inviting you to type something and see what happens. And uh, it's my feeling that the browser is kind of like that now, you know, where you can type into the address bar, you know, you know, alert, hi. And that's maybe the first baby step towards doing something uh, in JavaScript in the browser and getting this really dynamic, immediate feedback. Yeah, that's, that's been something I've been thinking about a lot with my son Colby, like you said, who's six and a half now. And trying to figure out, like, where can I start where I don't overwhelm him, but I also don't bore him to death? Um, and I'm sort of thinking, I said, I'm going to show him how to do a little HTML, but that might get kind of boring after a while. I was thinking, but I think you're right, maybe just setting up just a here's a canvas tag and then just draw a point and a line and a square and that would probably go a long way yeah i think it's you know having a sandbox and then showing that look you can push the sand around in the sandbox and make these things happen um i think that's a key part of you know what it is to be to be alive really is is the ability to affect your environment the ability to play the ability to control things and the computer is always you know been sort of this window into this universe where you you control everything you're like a little god and that's really powerful and really compelling and if you look at a lot of programmers i think that's that's where that comes from it's the desire to have a place where where everything is controllable and uh does exactly what you say even though if that makes no sense at all right maybe that would have been a better name for your blog rather than coding horror it was playing god dot com <laughs> oh, the, the, we're already into the unsolicited advice section <laughs> right. we just pepper those segments throughout the show the unsolicited advice so is Justin it, we're getting nowhere fast on this no, no, interview I've got, I've got a question we, we, that we, actually we, means something okay this is a good I'm question saying, right? we've gotten we've, we've, we've gotten as far as he got a TSR 80 or whatever <laughs> and that's it <laughs> okay so was was coding um, uh, was coding a conscious career choice for you or did it just happen I, I, I think it's a follow your interest sort of thing. I think a lot of programmers, we're, we're very lucky in that we, we happen to enjoy doing something that, that pays really well. Like say you woke up and 
you happen to be really, really good at mopping floors and really enjoyed that, um, that's not going to pay as well as uh, writing code. Um, So I I, I think we're we're all very fortunate to to be good at something that happens to pay really well. Um, And and I think it all comes from that for me. Did, Did you study it in school or was it something you picked up as a profession after school? Oh, no, this is way, way before school. I mean, the earliest school stuff was... I guess they had Apple IIs, um, but it was really before that. I mean, once once I was in, I sort of got hooked into this, you know, again, this little universe that you control. Um, and I, I think it, certainly as a young adult, that's 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 a escape hatch. You know, it's like you're you're this small person in this giant world that, that you have no control over, and all of a sudden in front of the computer, it's like, wow, here's a world where everything happens for a reason, and I can make anything happen that I want to happen. Um, do, you, do you have a CS degree or, or is it, was it an apprenticeship route that you took? Uh, let's see, when I went to college, I kind of was the computer, a little bit the computer geek in high school. Um, and I think when I went to college, I was sort of looking to get away from that. So I actually kind of stepped away from any computer classes intentionally and wasn't necessarily trying to be a computer science major. But I did inexorably get drawn back into it because I just loved it. You know, it's just something that I naturally was drawn to. So um Taking some time away from it was good to to sort of stretch my my social muscles a little in college, and uh, but eventually I was drawn back to it for sure. I eventually minored in computer science for arcane reasons that probably aren't important. So how did you get into blogging then? How did how did that all come about? Uh, blogging was really another one of those scratching an itch sort of things, but more of a professional scratching of an inch. Like I I I wanted someone to talk shop with and at my job there were other programmers for sure but they they weren't really as avid as i was you know they they enjoyed programming in the sense they enjoyed getting paid to be a programmer but it wasn't something they sort of took home with them and were super um excited about you know every waking moment like kind of i was they were like maybe accountants like accountants don't go home and talk about accounting and do like freelance accounting for fun open source yeah. accounting projects, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was sort of go, going above and beyond <clears throat> what I was able to get from my colleagues at work. And I'm not faulting the people that I worked with. I was just, you know, looking for an outlet. Uh, and I think the web became sort of my shoulder to cry on about programming. It was like, I'm going to talk about this stuff because I love it and share what I've learned. I mean, coding does seem to have become this cool subculture certainly within the last five years, it just seems to be much cooler to be a geek these days. I think what's happening actually is I think the world is becoming a little bit more geeky. I think computers are infecting everything. And I think it's not that we've become less geeky. It's that the world has become more geeky, which is great. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, that's like the world meeting you halfway. That almost never happens, right? Uh, So I think that's where we are. And I I think it's great. Um, I think that's a really good point, Jeff, actually. You know, you're right that... The, with with I, iPhones and iPads and all these other things that everyone starts using and playing with, it's not just people going sneaking off at lunch and playing in the computer room with the Apple IIe anymore. And everyone else wondering, what is that guy doing? You know? It's like everybody has a little computer with them and they start playing games and they start, and you're right, it's just sort of this merging. And, and sort of now there's sort of this continuum between like the ultra hardcore coder and sort of the casual um, technology user and then everything in between. But at each layer in between, the people have sort of respect for the next person down the chain who has a little more 
technical expertise to whether there's, there's less of that sort of um, divide. I think that's a really good point, actually. I never thought about that. Well, I think it's maybe like the car, maybe in the early, early days of the automobile, the, the car was viewed as like this experimental crazy thing for kooks, right? Like, okay, you have this, this mechanical horse, great, What's, that's crazy. But then as it matured, people realized that, hey, the car is really this practical, useful thing that almost everybody needs a car if they want to get around uh, efficiently. It's, it's much better than the horse. And I think the computer is, has crossed, crossed that chasm where people realize there's a general utility to this stuff. Um, and the, the people who are heavily into to cars are sort of of general use to society in some way as mechanics, if nothing else, right? Um, we're no longer the, the crazy inventors in, 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 in the backyard, but more mainstream, like, you know, the mechanic down the street. So, you know, Jeff, I looked at your, um, you know, I checked up on your blog um, before the show, and I noticed that you had 109,000 subscribers, at least according to FeedBurner. And a couple of things I'm wondering about that is, when you started out, were you just starting out like sort of almost like an online, you know, journal where you would just share it with like, you know, you'd have like 10 or 20 followers? Or were, you, were you going after a, a, a blog that would have a lot of influence? I don't no, I wasn't really pursuing any particular audience. I was just sort of writing a love letter to to the topic, you know, and whoever found that love letter, it's like sort of like throwing a message in a bottle and it just ends up on some island somewhere. Um, that's sort of the beauty of the internet. One of the things that really inspired me and one of the reasons we did Stack Overflow and, and Stack Exchange was realizing that you can sort of, the world will beat a path to your door. Like if you produce something, just for the sake of love of the topic, um, this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, other people who love the same things as you will find you and band together with you. And I think that's miraculous. I mean, I think that's, that's incredibly inspiring. And that is really one of the key lessons, one of the reasons we do Stack Overflow, which is about love of programming. And then every other Stack Exchange topic, you know, people, you know, system administrators who just love servers, uh, super user, people who just love you know, computers, not necessarily programming, but all aspects of computing outside of programming, um, or bicycles, or you know, physics, or whatever it is. You're, you're part of this tribe where everybody's sort of letting their freak flag fly and saying, I love this thing, um, and, and I love people who love it. So, I mean, that was, that was amazing. I'm, I'm still in awe that that, that all happened for me. Um, and I want it to happen for other people, you know, like if you love a topic, that's, that's kind of what Stack Exchange and Stack Overflow is. Come love these other topics with people who, who are very passionate about these things. And well, I mean, there's no better way to learn, really. Well, a couple of questions I'd like to ask you about the, the blog in particular. One is that, you know, at the, at the size you are now with, you know, over 100,000 subscribers, I mean, have you, have you seen it, a slowdown in the growth? I mean, I would think that you'd start to saturate the um, world of, coders who like to read blogs about coding or is it or is it growing at the same pace it did say two or three years ago uh i think it's shrinking some because i i simply am not blogging as much as i used to i mean if you want to get big you can follow sort of the huffington post model that's the evil way to become very big is mm -hmm. you just start doing things that you know intentionally cultivating i know this will appeal to more people i'm going to do it over and over as much as i can <laughs> right um, that's one way to grow bigger, and I'm certainly shrinking as, as a blogger because I, you know, we have a company to run, and I have, you know, 14 or 15 people that kind of report to me, and I have a lot of things I have to do every day. Um, so it's difficult for me. So 
doesn't seem to frequency. stop Jason Calacanis. <laughs> yeah, it depends. It depends. I mean, I and and to me, the mission, like I, I love my blog, but my blog is about me. You know, it's about me to some degree. It's it's a personal blog, and and the Stack Overflow Stack Exchange mission to me is so much more important because it's about all the other programmers who don't have time to blog, but have so much useful information to share and to learn. You know, with with their peers. And that is sort of the mission. It's like, what if everybody could do what I was doing in, in, in some small way um, without the barrier of, oh my gosh, I have to like start a blog. I have to write every week. You know, r- blogging is hard. Writing is really, really hard. And one of the recent blog entries I wrote about was that Stack Overflow was, was kind of trying to trick programmers into writing. And I mean, writing like communicating writing, you know, just communicating with their peers. Um, this is what makes you really good. Uh, not just being technically the best programmer who can sling code, but being a good programmer who can sling code and communicate well with their peers, that is a really good one-two punch. That is going to advance your career. That is going to make you a lot of money in the long run. It's going to make you really good at it. whatever it is that you do. And, and whether you're a programmer or you know a mechanic, an auto mechanic, if you're an auto mechanic that can communicate well with your customers, they're going to love you. And they're going to want to work with you because you can tell them, you know, this is why I'm working on your car. This is what's happening with your car. This is what we're going to do about it. Here are your choices. You're going to be very, very successful. Okay. As, as well as promoting that aspect, are you interested in promoting the entrepreneurial path? Are you interested in that or is it just the kind of coding knowledge? Uh, entrepreneurial stuff is, is not, personally, not a huge thing that I, 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 I love. I mean, I think it's a means to an end. Like you have a problem you want to solve. So you have to form a company because that's the, the most effective way to solve this problem in the world is, you know, form a company, band together, um, make it, a, you know, the mission for the people that you work with. Um, but, you know, entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur for the sake of being an entrepreneur is a little bit, uh, it's a bit of a fetish, right? Like, you know, uh, the idea that you should start a company because it's, it's what other people do or it's the path to riches or, you know... I don't know. I, I'm a little bit torn on that because I feel like it's more important to wake up every day and have something that you really believe in and you're really excited and you want to accomplish. And if that leads you to, okay, then we start a company, then fine, that's great. And we do have in the network, we have uh, uh, answers.onstartups.com. Uh, it, it shares a domain name for historical reasons, but that is our startup back exchange. So there's certainly a place for that in the network and there's no shortage of, you know, other places you can go to learn entrepreneurial stuff and people to follow. But I, I just be careful because I see it. It's almost like productivity porn for some people where the idea that they go on sites that they spend all their time on sites that tell them how to be more productive. Um, it's a little bit meta, right? It's, it's like you're, you're not really doing it at that point. It's like you either go be productive or learn about being productive. Are you an accidental entrepreneur then? Um, I don't, I don't know if I would call it accidental, but, it, but at some point, that's, that's the tool in your toolkit that lets you realize your goal. And for me, the goal, kind of the goal is, uh, well, there's a couple goals, actually. Uh, the, the ones that I described, which is sort of unlocking for the average programmer the ability to, to go on our site, have not a blog, uh, but get really good at communicating and have a breadcrumb trail that you can point to of you know stuff that you've shared with others that actually help them and you know, this learning environment you're participating in. That's what Stack Overflow is to me. Um, but beyond that, uh, you know, starting a company is, is, 
you know, something that you could do, uh, but it's baby steps. Like I don't want to, you, you gotta, you gotta, it's like moving a pyramid. You have to start with one block at a time rather than saying, okay, let's, let's, let's build a pyramid. It's like, no, no, no. Let's move this block 100 feet today. That's, that's how you build a pyramid. And that's what I want people to really focus on uh, more than the broad, really hard goals. So actually one thing is, I think might be kind of interesting is when you first started Stack Over, working on the Stack Overflow project with uh, Joel Spolsky, um, you were able to work on it because you were making income from your blog, right? I mean, you, you, you didn't have a full-time job when you started working on Stack Overflow. Is that right? I, I certainly had a savings. Like, I just don't... I mean, this is another luxury of working in a fairly high-paid profession. You know, I don't really spend that much money. Although uh, we live in California, which is incredibly expensive from a <laughs> cost-of-living standpoint. Uh, mostly right. just, you know, renting and owning and that sort of thing. But if I lived in, say, I don't know, Nebraska to pick a random state, um, you're generally going to make a killing, right, as a programmer relative to the cost of living. So it certainly opens you up. Like it's pretty trivial, uh, unless your circumstances are you know unusual and everybody's different. But in the typical case, if you're a single guy um, and you you're not you know buying Ferraris, then I, I think it's possible pretty trivially as a programmer to develop a pretty substantial savings. So you could take my point is you could take six months and pursue something on your own savings, which is kind of what I did, right? Oh, because so you weren't you weren't able to live off the blog income by itself. That just helped keep your uh your savings make your savings last a little longer yeah 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 that was just you know a nice to have i'm just curious so like you know for someone who has say you know i mean i know this is just a ballpark but for every ten thousand blogger uh for every ten thousand readers that you have i mean what kind of income does that represent for a blogger is that like a hundred dollars a month it's like a thousand dollars a month i mean i've i've never you know done anything like this i have no idea what those numbers what even the magnitude of those numbers are uh i mean it's so all over the map. I mean, for me, you know, again, I'm, I'm like Jared from Subway. It's like I lost 200 pounds eating Subway subs. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really representative of, of the typical experience you're going to have. So I'm really hesitant to give people advice about that because my, my situation, I feel, is kind of exceptional. I, I think it's more important to sort of keep your head down and, and keep pursuing. Like if you want to make money from your blog, um, What's more important than thinking about I got to make money for my blog is like, how do I make my blog great? You know, and, and one of the ways you do that is by, you know, sticking to a schedule and, and trying to keep the quality high and being consistent is more important than being outstanding, honestly. Yeah. So, so kind of what I'm getting at, I mean, the reason I asked that question is this, is that I think one of the reasons for starting a company for a lot of people, and I know this is a strong um, reason for me, is uh, independence and freedom, right? So it's like being able to work on what you exactly want to work on, how you want to work on it, and still be able to support yourself and your family. So, you know, if, if you're if you're living paycheck to paycheck, I mean, if you're living in California and you're working as a programmer, I mean, you're not really making a killing, you know? I mean, unless you're living in a small town away from the big city centers, I mean, you, you're, you're going to have a hard time putting a ton of money away if you have a family and a mortgage and stuff. So, um, and, and, and then you have to work for somebody else. I mean, maybe... Um, Maybe you get a higher paying job and you're a manager. So, and, and, and it seemed that Stack Overflow, I'm sorry, the coding horror for you may have helped you get that sort of freedom and independence to work on Stack Overflow, which then blossomed to something larger. But, um, you know, it sounds like that was only partially the case then. It sounds like, you know, you, you were able to live inexpensively enough that you had savings. So that, that's kind of why I was curious about that. 
Yeah, for me, it was just that I had over, you know, I've been a programmer. I'm pretty old now, right? I'm 40. So I've, I've been around a while. Hey, wait, who says 40 is old? You, you're, <laughs> I think you're younger than us. <laughs> no, really? I'm 40. I'm, I'm 40. How, when, Justin, you're what, 41? 40, 42. Just, just oh, turned dude, You are tall. There's a lot of really young programmers. In fact, <clears throat> um, we have programmers in their, you know, like 15, 14 on Stack Overflow that are quite good. Hmm. Uh, and, and it gives you some pause to think that, you know, when they started, you know, like, like look at Mark Zuckerberg. You figure... He didn't really experience the first tech bubble in 2001. I mean, all his, he was like a teenager, like a really young, young teenager then. So there's a whole generation of programmers now that never even experienced the first uh, tech bubble. You know, and I, I kind of think of programming now as sort of like writing for, in, in a sense of like authors. I mean, you have authors who are in their 70s and 80s who are cranking out novels, and you have writers in their, in their 20s. I mean, maybe programming, you can start a little younger because you may not have a whole lot to say about life and story when you're 16 or 17. Whereas when you're that age, you can actually create, you know, a piece of software that might be interesting or an iPhone app or something. But it doesn't seem to me anymore that because you can, at least because you can make a fair amount of income as a freelancer or as an employee, um, that you have this sort of independence, like a writer, um, and that you can make it last. Like you don't have to immediately become, um, a manager once you hit, say, your 40s or something and then no longer code, but just sort of oversee other people coding. I mean, what are your thoughts on on that? I think eventually you do get a... I don't say burned out, maybe that's not the right word, but you have sort of this feeling of like you've sort of seen... Uh, not seen at all, but like... I think being a programmer is, is adapting to rapid change. And rapid change is fun, but I think after a while you sort of you see history repeating, you know, you see a lot of the same patterns playing out again and again and again. And, uh, it stops being quite as fun to surf that wave when you've been through like five or six of these waves, like, like the tech bubble we talked about. Like, I think there's another bubble now, um, that we're currently writing and I don't know if it'll pop, but I mean, I've, I'm already having that feeling of like, okay, this, this, this has happened before. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, I mean, when you say that, I mean, you might say that in art, you might say that in music. I mean, you know, musicians and artists still create. They don't just like stop at 40 and just do nothing. I mean, it seems like if you I love something, their, their relationship with creating changes. Yeah, but so what they still create, right? I'm just wondering if, does it necessarily mean that you have to like stop creating and then just sort of, I don't know, be a manager, which means you're just sort of dealing with people issues. And I'm wondering if that has to be the case. I mean, for me, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously for everyone it's different, but I'm as... I love coding as much as I did 15 years ago. Of course, it doesn't have to be the case because everyone's everyone's different. I mean, for some people, that it will be the case, and for other people, it won't be the case. It just depends on what they've experienced and the relationship they've had with it. I think maybe after you get a certain age, maybe what I was trying to express earlier in a very poor way was that eventually you move on to mentoring because you realize that if you want to escape this 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 cycle that we have, then it's about education ultimately. It's about you know, this process of software craftsmanship, like how does the next generation escape making the same dumb mistakes that we made that I see people making all the time? And I think that sort of becomes your priority. Uh, and, and again, this is another aspect of Stack Overflow. It's, it's a way of saying, you know, reaching out to younger programmers and making sure that they don't, we don't create another generation of bad programmers, ultimately. You know, that we're actually saying, look, I've, I've reached the age where I, I've, I was the dumb young programmer making all the dumb mistakes and I, I love programming so much that I want to leave some trail of breadcrumbs for other programmers to follow so they can maybe make like 
one, you know, 10% less of the dumb mistakes that I made as a young programmer who thought I knew everything. Um, and how do you communicate this? I think that becomes sort of the legacy that you're trying to communicate of, at a certain age, you realize that, you know, this stuff is going to end. I mean, in, in the very broad, dramatic sense, you know, we're all going to end. And what have we accomplished, right? Like, what have we, how do you lead the next generation forward? I think becomes the focus at that point. That's what I was trying to express. Not so much that you have to become a manager, but I think as you get older, there's a natural pull, a gravitational pull towards hopefully mentoring and education and, and you know, how you change uh, programming for the better for, for the younger programmers. Just to change the subject a little bit, um, they say that money and success changes a person and relationships. Uh, I'm curious to know, has Stack Overflow's success had any effect on you? Um, I'm, again, I got to go back to the Jared example. I think I'm a little bit odd in, in the way that I approach life sometimes and, and, and the way that I look at things. And I think that's what's helped me be successful in, in some degree. But I, I also think that it makes me kind of resistant to... Um, that sort of change. Like I, I'm kind of so strongly motivated by the things internally that I want to do that like, I, I don't, I don't think that that stuff is going to affect me. Like, it's not like I'm going to all of a sudden decide to move to an Island and, and you know, this mission that I talked about, about, you know, educating other programmers is really hard. Uh, I mean, if you go on stack overflow, um, particularly late at night, it can be very depressing because you have so many programmers that are so bad really struggling trying to like, why are these people even programmers at all? You know, um, it's almost like an existential crisis that you reach into, but that's the way the world is. And that's the hard part of this. And, and that's what makes it worth, worth trying that you have to try to reach out to these extremely bad, bad programmers, um, and figure out how to help them. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that, you know, keeps me up at night. This is why I'm up late at night. Is Stack Overflow kind of all pervasive for you? Is it, is it what you live and breathe or is there anything else going on? I think Stack Overflow for me, for me is a manifestation of, of a, a mission, you know, like a, an evangelical calling of like, I really do love this stuff so much and programming is so important. You know, it's, it's the ultimate form of creation. You know, it's the playing God part of uh, our careers. Um, so it is something I believe really, really deeply in. Um, or I wouldn't have, you know, started a blog in my spare time and um, all the other things that, that I've been doing. So I, I, I think it is a bit of an evangelical mission at some level. And not just for programming, but, but the other evangelical mission is, if you put aside programming, when you search for something on the internet, a lot of the information on the internet is trapped in this really terrible, terrible PHPBB or vBulletin style software. And you have these really smart people uh, really avid, uh, you know, people who love certain topics trapped in this bad software. So whenever you do Google search, you end up on this page. Let me give you an example. It's a thread on a forum and you're trying to find some piece of information in that thread. And you have really smart people that know their stuff in there, but it's almost impossible because that information is on page five of 50 of this thread. It's buried in God knows how much like avatar junk and like, you know, people listing, you know, everything they ate for lunch and random discussions that they're having. It may be out of date, you know, it may be from 2005, uh, might not even be the correct information. Um, it becomes very, very hard to get at information entombed in this classical forum software. So part of the paradigm we're trying to break with Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange is really the classic forum paradigm. We're saying, look, forums aren't really the best way to surface information on the internet. 
there's actually a better way. This Q&A format is fundamentally better um, for getting an information. Um, it, it frees you from a lot of the random discussion. It puts the best information at the top. It keeps people focused. Um, it depends how you do it. Obviously, there's tweaks, but it's fundamentally a better format, and it's a way forward. So that's also the mission, really, is raising the, the, the bar for how information is transmitted on the Internet. Uh, for the, again, for the average user that would be on a forum, not the blogger necessarily. So that's also the mission. Okay, you've got me curious now. What, what passions do you have that are nothing to do with Stack Overflow or Stack Exchange? Well, uh, let's see. I, I do really enjoy uh, rock band. I have real guitars now, real stringed <laughs> guitars, uh, which is a clever evolution of that game. Um, and and, and you, to me, it's funny because that's an illustration of the game dynamic, which we use on Stack Overflow, obviously. It's a game, but it's a game in service of some higher calling. You know, the purpose of the game is learning. So to the extent that we give you these points and these badges and things like that, we're encouraging activities that, that make you better and make the greater community better. And Rock Band is a great example of that because in 2005, there was this game Guitar Hero. That's when the genre started. And it was you playing you know, a fake guitar and playing along with the music, learning some rhythm. And now in 2011, I have been so incentivized by this game that I actually have a real guitar with real strings that, I mean, it is, it is incredibly difficult to play guitar. <laughs> that's one thing you learn but it's a game it's like sort of like it's herded me along from not ever even knowing music at all to learning music to like hearing the guitar track hearing the 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 drums hearing the keyboard track i can break the music down now and hear the different parts of it and understand it i have rhythm some basic you know rhythm for some small value of having <laughs> um and i can actually pick up a guitar and play like some very very basic songs now in very very poorly i might add but <laughs> That's a really nice progression. I've learned something in the real world, right? That time has not disappeared. It's not like World of Warcraft, where at the end of the day with World of Warcraft, what, what do you have to show for your effort? You know, what have you accomplished? What, what is that? How has that broadened you as an individual? I guess you're learning to think strategically. So you may be able to take that strategy into other aspects of your life and apply it. World of Warcraft, World of Warcraft the, is more one-on-one, -on -one, isn't it? It's not like StarCraft, which is like uh, real-time strategy, right? Well, I want to point out that you did bring up the one aspect of World of Warcraft that can be good. It's like, say you're in a guild and you're learning sort of how to interact with other people online. Um, that is the one thing you actually can learn from World of Warcraft is like basically uh, social interaction. And to the extent that it's a social game, it's training you how to be social in a way that accomplishes goals. Um, that, that's a fair point. But in the general, general sense of playing World of Warcraft and killing, you know, level one rats to get to the level 50 rats, um, <laughs> it's not necessarily the best investment of, of your time, uh, per, you know, personally or professionally. I'm not against so it. The, I'm pro entertainment, but, you know. I, I'm just curious about the, so Rock Band is a, is a video game, is that right? Yes, it's a video game. We, we, we don't really do video games, so we, we're not too familiar with World of Warcraft or, or the... Well, I, I know what World of Warcraft is and StarCraft. I've just never... I, I, I try and stay away from them because the few video games I played back in the 90s like Doom and Quake and uh, Command and & Conquer were so addictive and, and distracted me yeah. for so long. Like weeks and maybe even a month I lost at time. weeks to Command & Conquer, so... Yeah, I lost, I lost. There's at least six weeks of my life that are just unaccounted for. In well, that's, that's my and point. It's like, okay, that, what if what, you weren't losing that time? What if the game was about learning? What if the game actually taught you how to be a better programmer? Yeah. What if the game taught you how to play a real guitar? This is my point. Do you think we should apply, do you think all businesses should, uh, and all, uh, basically everywhere, we should apply game theory, points and badges to everything? Uh, not necessarily everything, but I think the, the goal of like, hey, 
why can't this be fun should be absolutely paramount. I think so many businesses, so many endeavors would, would be uh, improved if they had this mentality of like, why isn't this fun? Like, why can't this be fun? You know, like this has to be boring work. Who's who came well, up you with know, that? It, it, it's almost like you know, this concept of leveling up. Um, it can be can re- really be applied to uh, school, I think, very well. So instead of okay, we're going to go through this course, you know, this semester or this quarter or whatever, and, and we're going to cover this material, and you're going to get an A, B, C, or D or whatever, depending on how you do on the tests and the homework. But instead of doing that, it's like level, have people level up as soon as you've mastered you know, X material, you're level one, then you're level two. And I, I find that to be a very appealing way to learn because you can go as fast as you want, but it also keeps people from moving beyond a point where they're, where they're ready. Because if, once you have, like if you've taken a foreign language or math classes, and once you develop these cracks in your knowledge, you just can't, even though you're being pushed to the next level, you're not ready, right? If you get a C in, in trigonometry and then you try and go to advanced trig, you're screwed, right? <laughs> because you really didn't learn it that well. Well, there is a name for this. It's called the gamification and there's some really good uh, presentations. Actually, just searching for the word. Um, I wish I had better links to provide, but there's there's some really excellent uh, presentations on it that I may send you guys by email later, so you can link it in the show notes. But I, I do believe in it. I mean, like anything else, there's ways to do it stupidly where you're doing it for the wrong reasons. But I think as long as you have, again, it's about the mission. If the mission is learning, if you have a genuinely positive a reason that you're embarking on this gamification other than I want to make more money, you know, for my company, which isn't really a great reason. But if, if it's really like, Hey, I want the people, you know, to, to be incentivized to actually learn from each other. That's a noble goal. And I think people will see that. And also it makes it easier to fit in the gamification because people sort of, they can tell when they're being gamed for, for, for bad reasons, but they like, people like to be gamed for good reasons. Like they, it's really interesting. There's this positive virtuous feedback cycle on Stack Overflow where they're like, okay, you have this reputation system, you have these badges, you have all these things, but they sort of get like, oh, there's this light bulb that goes off over their heads. Like, wow, I did something that really helped someone else or me, you know? And, and they, there's a light bulb that goes off and they get it and they want to play um, and, and play in the service of learning. Everybody gets it, you know? So as long as you have the right mindset from the start, I think it's a fairly safe thing to want to add. Uh, this gamification. Well, you know, it's it's funny because I see that happen with my my son takes uh, karate, and you know they have the belts and they have these little you know sort of your yellow belt or orange belt, and they have like they and even for the little kids they break it down into like sub belts, right? Like beginning oh, nice. or intermediate, advanced, yellow belts. It gives them something to shoot for every two or three months. They test for the next belt, and the kids cannot wait. For the to get to the next level, right? I mean, right. if you're in a beginning yellow, you can't wait to be one of those intermediate levels, you know, right. intermediate yellow belt, and and it really works. <clears throat> and I was thinking about applying that to another situation. I uh, and I've talked about this on the show, but so I I coach a bunch of my son and a bunch of his friends. I you know would teach them soccer on Sundays, go out for a couple hours, and and I was like, you know, I wonder if I could apply the same thing where like they get a T-shirt or something, and they master some skills, so it gets them a little extra incentive to work on something as opposed to hey, we're just going to go out and kick the ball around. And I just see it's in the in the it's such a strong motivation for for kids to get something to shoot for that's attainable within a reasonable amount of time. And it seems like obviously you've spent a lot of time thinking about those incentives um, on Stack Overflow with your badges, which are essentially like belts, <laughs> except you can have them on different ortho, you know sort of orthogonal areas or, or orthogonal directions. Oh, it's incredibly powerful. I think the belt example that you brought up is an excellent one uh, of using it, and I think. 
the kids understand that the belts aren't there to trick them. The belts are there because it feels good to achieve skill levels, right? I mean, fundamentally, you're mastering this thing, and that feels good. And that's what the belt represents, right? It's not this arbitrary colored belt. It's about skill. And this, this aspirational element of, I would like to be skilled at this thing. Um, that's fantastic. And I, I, the only thing I would caution people about is, particularly if you're designing these systems for online or the situation you described where you're adding it, think really hard. Sometimes you can incentivize the wrong things accidentally. Um, so do think through, like, what behavior does this actually encourage? And also, particularly online, you think, okay, how are people going to try to game this? You know, just because they're bored and they want to, you know, win in the broadest possible sense of the word, uh, make sure that it's, it's not too easy to game the incentives uh, so that you're sort of doing the wrong things. And it can be kind of subtle when that happens. So, Jeff, how did you and Joel meet and how did the first discussion about Stack Overflow come about? Uh, Joel and I first met when Joel does these uh, Fogbugs World Tours. I mean, Joel is now the CEO of, we just changed the name of the company, it's Stack Exchange Incorporated now. Uh, but he still has a close association with Fog Creek, which is his previous company, of course. And I met him, oh gosh, four years ago, maybe? He was oh, wait, doing, hold on one second. Hold on, hold on sec. Is he not running Fogbugs anymore? Uh, he's not re- He's involved, but only sort of at a distance. Um, wow, because that's pretty impressive to make the jump to Stack Exchange. Because obviously, Fogbugs is a really big deal. I mean, that was Joel Spolsky. That you know, he's still you know, involved. Fog- it's not like he's okay. he's walked away from it entirely. But I think you also got to realize. I mean, just look, do the math. Joel has been at that company for ten years, right? right. What happens after ten years at a company? I mean, yeah. you kind of want to do the next thing, right? I mean, I don't begrudge Joel this. I don't begrudge anybody this. And that's not to say that he doesn't care about Fuck Creek. He does deeply. But after 10 years, you're kind of ready for the next thing, man. You know what I'm saying? So I think this is the next thing for Joel. And it is nice because it's really quite radically different from what Fogbugs does. A, we're not really selling software, which is a model that I increasingly have difficulty believing in. Um but, you know, it's it's more the classical, you know, subsidized by services and advertising, and the main product is free. Um, the reason this is important for us is because uh, the problem, well, let me take a mild detour. The problem with selling software is it becomes a little bit of an adversarial relationship where because I paid you money, you owe me this thing. That is a weird relationship to me. Well, the problem, the problem with t- taking any other business approach than selling software is you have to get such huge volume and it's practically impossible. Like it's 0.0001% chance of you getting the kind of success that you've had with Stack Overflow. That, that's Whereas- a total, totally fair point. I don't dispute that at all. Uh, the only thing I'm going to point out is that for, for our model, uh, it's kind of important that, that we are running alongside our users. Like we're on the same mission that they are on. We are not your pimp and your vendor. We are your peers. We're doing this with you and beside you. That is critically important. And I don't know for our particular goal of you know, learning within a community on, t- on specific topics, I don't know how you could charge people directly and still have that same relationship. Oh, completely. But it's just that you, you said you didn't believe in the sale of software as a model. Were you, were you just talking about that for your own business or are you talking about that in general? Well, for my own, for my own, I mean, I'm, I'm expressing my own personal bias, of course. I'm not saying that, like, everybody should, you know, do it the way I do it. I personally can't believe in it anymore. Because, like, out of 100,000 people, you know, 999 of, of, of that group would be able to create a business selling software, and only one of them would be able to create a Stack Overflow. 
I think I view it as inevitable that whatever software you have, somebody's going to undercut you for free. I think I view that as inevitability. Like well, you know, like what about something like fresh book, like like something like fresh books, right? Let's take like an accounting. I mean, since we've been talking about accounting as counterexample, right. I mean, you know, who's going to do like an, you know, you, you know, it's like they they sell a service, so it's not like they sell it outright. You pay a monthly service fee to use right. fresh books and do your accounting invoicing. Um, and the only way people, I mean, you can undercut it, but people aren't going to do that for fun. Um, it seems like for things that people would do anyway for fun, would undercut they'd undercut you. Um, but for something like that. Um, you know, I'm wondering, that's, that may be a different category, I would think. I think there's still ways to stay ahead. I think there's still ways, if you want to charge money for software, as long as you're very, very good. But I think the rise of open source software and the number of programmers, I mean, look at the barrier to entry for a programmer now. It's, it's nil, you know? You have an infinity of programmers working on an infinity of topics. Eventually, there's going to be an open source competitor that's pretty credible, whatever it is you're doing. And it's going to be basically free. Uh, if not free, it's going to be kind of a race to the bottom type affair, where it's like, okay, you're ten dollars a month, I'm eight dollars a month. You're eight dollars a month, I'm six dollars a month. But none I'm, of that, none of that actually matters. I mean, let's let's take it from the viewpoint of how much money does one programmer need to earn? So you can survive off say five thousand to ten thousand a month. So the question is, can you, as a solo programmer, create a piece of software that can bring you in that amount of revenue? And I, for example, have a Plugio.com that's a, a Twitter productivity tool. And in the marketplace that I'm at, it's completely and utterly saturated. You can get exactly what I do for free, but I'm still in, have a business that's currently growing at 20% and bringing me in that amount of personal revenue. So that's kind of where I'm coming from with this. Well, that's awesome. I mean, I think that's fantastic. And I really, I mean, I encourage, I kind of wrote about this on the iPhone when I got my first iPhone. I was really impressed with the ecosystem that Apple had created that, you know, you could create these $1 apps and make a pretty good living at it, right? And the barrier's pretty low. And I was like, that's awesome. You know, and it, it makes it easy for people to install software on your phone. I had never installed software on a phone before my iPhone. And now it's like, okay, this is easy. This is great. This is a fantastic ecosystem. But I, I think the flip side to what you're saying is you can never, it's going to be really increasingly hard to have these massive monopolies like, like what Microsoft had. Um, oh, completely. Where you're making like billions of dollars um, from software. I think that's kind of going away. I don't think that's ever going to come back. Well, so it's like it's moving into like a, a mom and pop software uh, kind of state. I'm, I just it's just that the the idea of see uh, for me that this is what I feel the same way as you feel about coding to teach younger people a certain way. I feel about that from an entrepreneurial point of view. And my my perspective is don't chase after a big golden ticket. Don't try and start Facebook. Don't try and start Stack Overflow. Those are really hard things to do. Try and start something really small where you just make a couple of thousand a month. All right, now, or you start with a couple That's thousand, great. but then you can scale to five or ten. I mean, because a couple thousand dollars exactly. a month is not—you can't live off that. It's just like you know, it's like making ads off your. I know, I understand, but it's like it's—it's it's the proof of concept. So, kind of this this kind of golden ticket mentality that we have in tech at, mo at the moment now, with things like Y Combinator and the Launch Conference, et cetera, et cetera. For me, it's it's leading a whole load of young people down a kind of wild goose chase. Well, no, I think that's a fantastic point. I totally support what you're saying, and and I'm very bullish, like particularly iPhone and Android, they're creating these huge software markets that didn't exist for, you know, at, at 99 cents for software, it becomes a no-brainer, you know, and I think that's, if somebody can make, you know, 10 or $20,000 a month on it, that's fantastic. I love that. That's, 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 that's a great ecosystem. I'm very excited about the mobile ecosystem for development. Apologies if I'm getting a bit passionate about it. <laughs> no, no, no. I think you got a great point. you got a great point. I mean, well, I, the, the, the other example, of course, is, is 37 Signals, which they, they've promoted this more than anyone, I think, which is the idea of creating like a, what they call like an Italian restaurant on the web. Um, 
which is, you know, you sell software and you do a really good job and you pick a niche of some kind and you target what, you know, what they term the Fortune 5 million. You know, you, you go after businesses are more apt to pay for things than, than consumers. And if you just do a really good job, you know, you can make a, a nice business, not just enough to, to support you at a very low level, but you can have a nice small business with, you know, 5, 10, 20, 50 employees. Um, and you're not trying to take over the world, but you're trying to create some value in a niche and you're trying to create some sort of financial independence for yourself. And, um, you know, there are plenty of, plenty of competitors for everything they build that's free, that's open source. But because they do a really nice job of, of all the other finer details that most programmers don't want to deal with, <clears throat> you know, UI things and, and, and everything else, that they're able to survive as a, as a business very well, it seems. Well, let me take this to the opposite extreme. So I wrote about <laughs> content farms. So if you look at the evolution of the internet, starting like when sort of Google, Google's around for, since basically 2000, a little bit earlier, but for most people, they found out about Google in the year 2000. The way the internet is different in the year 2000 than now, so 10 years on, um, I don't think there is this concept of content farming where you have a, quote, an air quote business of taking other people's content, legally or not, doesn't actually matter. And in our case, it's actually legal. Uh, scraping it, adding your own add layer to it, remixing it in some minor way, and then republishing it to the internet. That's a business, right? Mm-hmm. And it actually turns out to be a pretty good business, which is really, really scary. Um, that you're kind of polluting the internet with, with scraped content, with slightly different advertising. Um, and, and that's the new micro business, right? Like, but is that good? I mean, this yeah. is kind of the race to the bottom that I was kind of alluding to with, with software. Like, I, I have a hard time not seeing some dystopian future um, w- with some of this stuff where the bottom is so low. Um, and, and Google, to their credit, did crack down on some of these content farms. And thank goodness, because it was getting totally out of control. But the, the reason that happens, and this is where I'm drawing the analog with software, it's trivially easy now. I could get some time on Amazon EC2, right? Get a whole server farm spun up for pennies, right? And start my own content farm in a matter of you know, a couple hours, really. And there's probably packages that do this automatically now. Um, and I think that's what you're looking at with software because it's so much easier to write software now and it's so much easier to publish stuff on the web um, that I, I think you're going to see a lot of, like the 37 signals model that you talked about. Yes, you can stay ahead for sure. But I think the competition is, you know, those mammals are getting pretty smart and the dinosaurs need to start uh, looking around. And see what's going so you're on. thinking about sort of Microsoft and, and Intuit. They're the dinosaurs. To some degree, but I think it's going to be nipping at the heels of a lot of traditional software companies. Maybe I'm just a pessimist when it comes to this stuff. Um, but I, I certainly believe in, in the small business. That's not really going away. Um, but I, I just feel like the, the bar for competition gets higher every day um, on the internet in particular. Um, it's, very, it's very easy to get started and there's more people doing it every day. So, so I, I like, uh, you, we interrupted you, or I should say, I, and I interrupted you, <laughs> your, 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 but your story, Justin asked you how you and Joel met and how Stack Overflow started. Yeah, exactly. How did you and Joel meet? And uh, the first discussion about Stack Overflow, I'm really interested to know that spark. Where did it first start? Well, the, the spark was, so I had met Joel at the Fogbugs World Tour. You're right, we got off on a tangent, I apologize. Let's pop the stack back to that. <laughs> uh, and I met him and we talked, and Joel's very nice. He's a great person to work with. I enjoy working with Joel tremendously. He's a very, very nice person. Um, and uh, a couple months later, I, the blog had like become so popular 
that it was making my regular work seem really quaint, you know, not just, for, I mean, I was making money at it, that, that wasn't really the point. The point was, when you get up every day, sort of, what's your goal? And I think for a lot of people, or maybe just me, I look at it as like, well, how, how much change can I affect in the world by this thing that I'm doing? And going to work and, you know, seeing 30 people every day versus writing a blog entry and reaching 100,000 people every day started to make that seem very, very quaint. Like, I felt very much like, like Superman and Clark Kent. You know, I'm Clark Kent during the day and I work at the Daily Bugle or whatever. And, and then I'm Superman and I can, you know, change the world. Um, so which one do you want to be? Do you want to be Clark Kent or do you want to be Superman? And clearly it was like, I want to be, I have to be Superman because that's how I fight evil, right? That's how you conquer the evil in the world. That's the big noble goal, uh, not writing stories about it in the Daily Bugle. Um, so that's kind of where I was coming at it from. But I didn't really know what to do. I was like, okay, uh, I, could, I could be a full-time blogger, but that's not really making things, is it? You know, that's just writing about things. That's like being the reporter at the Daily Bugle. I want to create stuff. I want to create something that's going to take this ball of energy that I have on this blog and push it in some direction that's useful for everybody, right? And that's why I started calling people sort of on the internet that I knew that, that were influential, that, that, that I respected. And Joel was one of those people. And I emailed him and said, hey, Joel, you know, I have this blog. I, don't, I, I, need, I need a direction. I, I need something to, to, to do. And I don't know what that is exactly. And I'm reaching out to smart people and asking them, like, you know, what, what do you think I should do? And how should I do it? And Joel had the germ of the idea of like, and it really came from, honestly, Experts Exchange. Because Experts Exchange, which... Uh, this has probably been discussed a lot, but uh, well, probably one of the most hated sites on the internet. Uh, so you end up on this page that's like, okay, I have a question. I, I type something into Google. Like, okay, I need my answer. Well, you end up on an experts exchange page and it's totally trying to game you. It's like ending up on a used car sales lot. It's like, hey, used car sales, come over here, buddy. Have I got a deal for you? So you want an answer. Well, <laughs> you know, and nobody likes this. It's like you're trying to be gamed. And Joel's idea was essentially like Q&A is a good format. It works as demonstrated by Experts Exchange. Let's just do that, but without all the, the sleaze, you know? Like let's make a really nice, ethical, cool, community-generated uh, uh, Q&A site. Um, and I was like, wow, that's, that's a really good idea because I had been a longtime student of online community, obviously the community around my blog, participating in many communities online. And community building is, 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 is fun. I mean, that's where you get a lot of, of power of of people doing stuff collectively towards some goal. Was um, that his I, first answer? I mean, is this just two emails now or was there back and forth? Uh, it was that? pretty, it was one of the earliest. Yeah, it was pretty much directly. That's the germ of the idea. And I was like, wow, that's a great idea. And huh. uh, uh, then we pretty much decided that was the thing that made sense that we wanted to work on. And uh, then I quit my job and then we moved forward from there, you know? So that, that really was the, the, the germ of the idea and uh, uh, online community building was really music to my ears. And seeing uh, Experts Exchange, I cannot emphasize enough how, how helpful it is to have a really clear enemy that's doing something that's clearly wrong. That really makes it... I want to thank Experts Exchange for being Experts Exchange because without them, we could not have built Stack Overflow because it made it so clear how not to do this thing. And like, you know, having a villain makes it easy to be the hero, Right. Yeah, so you really fulfilled the whole hero thing. Uh, that's awesome. Well, so, Justin, I'd like to change directions, if that's okay with you. Oh, there, um, was, there was one question okay, I wanted to ask, which was, um, how instrumental was the podcast, the Stack Overflow podcast, in the growth and success of Stack Overflow? I don't know the answer to that. I can tell you why we did the podcast and what it was for. Initially, I was actually, I don't want to say 
opposed, but I was not too enchanted with the idea of having a podcast. Uh, what convinced me was that the way we were building Stack Overflow and the way we, the philosophy of Stack Overflow was these are, you're, you're generating artifacts from normal behavior online. That's not like I must do this special thing. Like I log into my blog software, I type create new entry for the week of, you know, March 12th. Um, you just go online and you answer a question and then and that just sort of automatically leads to stuff being produced online, right? It's, it, the friction is very low. That's the philosophy. Keep it low friction. So Joel and I had these weekly calls where we would talk about, okay, what are we doing? How are we doing it? What's the point of this? And Joel's observation was, wow, this is a really useful conversation. We should make this public. And I was like, well, that's not really a bad idea because these conversations are kind of interesting, at least to me, and other people might potentially benefit from them and then also get visibility into like what Stack Overflow is supposed to be, why are we doing this, what is it for. For those people that are interested, they can sort of follow along at home. Um, and, and, you know, call in and comment and all that stuff. So that yeah, was sort of the philosophy. I was, a bi- I was a big fan of the podcast, so I was actually very disappointed that you guys stopped doing it. Um, Why did it stop? Yeah, what was the... Joel just didn't want to do it anymore. It's very simple. Joel just... And, and in his defense, I think the show... You need really high production values to have a really, really good podcast. I mean, I think we did well for having a very low-friction podcast. But, it's, but after like podcast 80 or so, Joel was like, okay, now we're just repeating ourselves. You know, with, without really good structure and without like somebody sort of mm, spending a lot of planning time figuring out what's going on on the podcast, you inevitably start repeating yourself. And Joel kind of objected to that. And I can see where he's coming from. I don't entirely agree, but I do see where he was coming from. Uh, so the podcast may come back. Uh, in fact, there's been some, some rumblings about that recently. But I think that was Joel's main objection, was just add more structure. How big did the podcast get in terms of listeners? Do you, do, you have, do you know the numbers? Well, we were hosted on the Conversations Network, which continue to thank those guys because that's a nonprofit org um, um, uh, supported by advertising. Uh, and I think I heard it was like thirty to 40,000 at its peak. Well, is that like people, people would download the show within like a week or two or something like that? Yeah, within like, that's right. Within like two or three weeks, it would be thirty or 40,000 downloads. Wow, that's pretty big. Now, did it did it max out at a certain point? Did you guys get big when all your readers of, of of your two blogs kind of found you, and then it just kind of hit a steady state, or was it were you guys that continually climbing? No, I think it does reach a steady state because it's you know it's a technical podcast. It's not like we're you know love lines here with Dr. Drew. Um, there's a limited accessibility to the topic, and I think that was another thing that Joel kind of objected to was he felt like we were kind of reaching we were preaching to the converted to some degree. We weren't actually ever reaching outside of our niche. And certainly, if you look at the overall strategic direction of what we're trying to do, eventually we want to get out of the I'm a geek programmer niche uh, on this Q&A sites. We want to have Q&A sites on every topic where there are people passionate about that topic, whether or not you're a geek, right? You're a programmer. And right now we're sort of playing that six degrees of Kevin Bacon game where because you're a programmer who is also a system administrator, that leads you to server fault. And you may also be into homebrewing, so that will lead you to the homebrew site. And then eventually people are going to be on the homebrew site that aren't technical at all. That's how they discovered our network. And then from them we'll get to say pilots. I'm a homebrewer and I'm a pilot. So then we'll have a pilot site. So would you have a podcast for each of your verticals? Uh, you could. I mean, that's kind of the strategy that, that we're, we're looking at. I mean, there's actually, the community started on, on Superuser, which is our just computer enthusiast community. They started their own blog completely on their own time. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And if you go to blog.superuser.com, that's completely community synthesized content. That is not something we as a company 
subsidized or paid for. They just organically created that. Um, and certainly there's chat rooms per site. Uh, there's, you know, that is definitely the model. We send people to conferences now. Uh, we actually sponsor people within communities. We send somebody to a GIS conference on the GIS community. We sent somebody from the game developer uh, subsite to a GDC this year. So certainly that is the way we look at it. It's like, it's about the topic. and The way you present it, right? The way you present your business, what it sounds like to me, and maybe I'm completely mishearing, it sounds like someone just threw a whole bunch of balls up in the air and they all kind of landed in just a certain kind of way where it all made sense and it all made a really, really successful business. (laughs) Like it just seems so kind of accidental. Uh, Well, maybe. I mean, I think there's some element of of accident to any success in the world. I think that's where a lot of successful people really go wrong, is they view it as like, I'm successful because I'm awesome. And they forget to attribute some of their success to to luck or being in the right place at the right time, which is a huge factor for a lot of people. It still takes talent. I mean, I'm not going to knock talent. Talent is brilliant. Um, Or even more important than talent, it takes perseverance, right? Which is totally totally the case with you guys, right? I mean, you persevered in your blog, built that up. Until you had a, a, a big a following that you could pull into Stack Overflow, because if you started Stack Overflow with no following and and without Joel, I mean the chance of that succeeding are pretty low, I would think. It definitely right? helps to have sort of the the godfathers of a topic involved with big big audiences. We've certainly learned that with our verticals. You know, if you can involve the king of X, where X is a topic, then of course you're going to do better. And certainly, one thing I tell people is, you know, I try to be upfront with them that. You know, let, let's say you want to start a band and, and be really successful at digi- you know, distributing your music digitally. Well, what's the first step to being, you know, selling a lot of music online? Well, step one is be Radiohead, right? Like <laughs> start by being this huge band. Um, so you got to get to be, uh, obviously getting to be a huge band is, is, is a huge boon, uh, without a doubt. I don't think it's the only reason though. And I do want to object slightly to the characterization in that I feel again, one thing that really helped us was we had a clear mission, right? We're cleaning up the town. Like Experts Exchange is the site that everybody hates. I actually don't hate Experts Exchange. I love Experts Exchange. I'm glad they exist. Um, but having them around, being really successful at being sort of the, the mustache twirling villain uh, made it really easy for us to focus, right? And say, this is what we're building. This is sort of what we're trying to counteract in some way. Well, you, you kind of think of, I, I have this vision in my head of people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates having these very detailed execution plans and, and mission plans and kind of sticking to those plans day by day. But I don't get the sense of that with you guys. And I, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing or a good thing, but it's just, it's just an observation. Well, I, I don't, I don't know. How was, how was, because they had a mission for Stack Overflow, Justin, right? Like they had, I mean, as, as Jeff has talked about, that he wanted to clean things up, make it very easy for people to find information, share, learn from each other. And he, so let's take Steve Jobs, for instance. I mean, he probably had a very, you know, got kind of a clear idea of what he wanted, at least for a first version. And then they just build on that, right? I mean, I don't see how those are different. I think have, you got to be carry a vision. I think it's not necessarily this this detailed plan because I mean, to dig up those ancient quotes, like <laughs> no plan survives contact with the enemy, right? It just right. doesn't. The only thing that will survive though is having a vision and having you know something that this is why you get up in the morning. This is something you believe deeply in. That is way more important than a detailed plan. Obviously, having that and a detailed plan is obviously helpful. If you can't organize or can't plan at all, you're kind of screwed at some level. Um, But having the vision you can communicate to others and believe in, I think is the first step there. And if you can have that, add a little bit of execution. And I think our execution was really good on Stack Overflow, right? I mean, we built the thing. It works. It was fast. Um, I think think agile is what I'm trying to say. 
And I, th- I think that I'm, I, I've somehow said it in a in a way that was iterative. Um, it's actually yeah, iterative, iterative agile, agile and emergent. And um, yeah, so that's what I was trying to say. And yeah, it's I, I, I didn't just, come across I just very nicely. If, <laughs> I just wonder if your your characterizations of these other companies even right. Like, I mean, is does are they just following along this five year plan? Or are they iterating a little bit uh, as they develop a product and they see what they like and what they don't like and what they're well, going to? I mean, I've always heard that you know when. Apple are producing the next iPod or iPad or whatever. Like it's two years down the line kind of planning that they have going on there. Well, I mean, look at Apple, I I think is actually a great example of, I think Steve Jobs' ultimate strategy was like, he doesn't actually believe in the personal computer. I think he believes in the, in the computing device, which is a very different thing. Um, Like I think the iPad is really where he was going and he just wasn't able to get there until now. I think that was always his vision, was essentially it's kind of a closed ecosystem. And I, I think actually that has some benefits. I'm not actually arguing against that. I think the iPad is a wonderful device. Uh, but the desire to control the experience, you know, very, very tightly, I, I think works. And, and the iPad, you know, again, it's a keyboardless device. This is not personal computing. This is not something Steve, you know, the Waz is going to break apart and install peripherals in. Um, right. So I think even Jeff, then, the vision can is, is not maybe what you thought it was at the beginning. And I think Steve Jobs, in his mind, that's always where he wanted to go. Um, so, Justin, I have a couple topics I want to hit real before we run out of time. Go for it, it, yeah. Okay. So, uh, Jeff, one one of the strategic decisions you made with Stack Overflow, um, or maybe it was just sort of a maybe strategic is the wrong way to char- characterize it is the idea uh, the um, using of open id as a for, for your for your login system your authentication system and right. i know there's been some pushback on it on the web people have started companies have started to drop it because they found it was a lot more painful in trouble than it was worth and people struggled with it and and i have to say from my own experience on stack overflow like i signed up on one year one of the open id providers you know built up i don't know 30 or 40 points asked about 10 questions did some stuff and then I somehow lost my login name. I couldn't remember it, and I could, and I, I could never find. It. I had to start another account. So I have two accounts. One of them that has been orphaned forever. I can never get and merge well, them. We and can merge one. those. That's really trivial. You just mail us. And we merge those. It's really simple. Well, that's good. That's nice to know. Now the question is, how how do I find it? <laughs> so here's my question to you, Jeff. I mean, what has been your experience with it? Uh, you know, what has worked well, and maybe is there anything not worked as well as you had hoped well, for uh, Open ID in, specific, in specifically? I mean. Right, right, right. Well, that's kind of a very, very big, big topic. I, I think, again, you have to bear in mind the vision. OpenID is just a manifestation of the vision. The vision is logging into websites is a pain in the ass. Okay, like every website I go to doesn't know who I am, right? So really the broader thing you want to think about is like how do we solve the problem of identity online? Where I, I participate in 50 different websites. All 50 of them require me to create an account. And all 50 of them require me to use a, a password, right? So that's sort of the problem statement. I mean, if, if you love that as the status quo, then I'm not talking to the right... And I don't mean you in general, but anyone listening, if, if you love that, then, then I'm talking to the wrong person. Like, we shouldn't even be talking to each other. Uh, but I view that as a major problem. Um, not just because... Well, and, and one of the reasons that's a problem is because when you have 50 passwords, you have 50 silos that you're trusting with that password, um, and statistically, of those 50 sites, is one of them going to screw up and expose your password? Uh, if you're like most users, and again, you may be exceptional, but if you're like the average user, you have maybe three or four actual passwords. So that means when one is exposed, they're kind of all exposed. And the worst case scenario is if your email password is exposed, 
that's kind of the master key to your identity because any password provider, you can always send a recovery to your email address. So once that's compromised, you're pretty much in identity theft hell. That's so, a really good point. So for anybody who's reused passwords across multiple sites and is a little concerned, like, oh, crap, that was a mistake, but I don't really want to go to all these sites and change it, just go and change. Make sure whatever you use for your email password is, is a better password, letters, numbers, combination, and is different from everything else, right? Right. I mean, that would be the first still, place to start. Yeah, right, right. No, I agree. But the whole system is just broken, right? Like really, really broken. And people who like that broken system, like I just don't get those people. Like I'm not saying you're one of those people, but like I, I, in the design goal of Stack Overflow was like, look, we, we have to envision a better future, like slightly better than what we have, right? Um, and yes, there's pros and cons to, to the way OpenID works because you're essentially involving a third party in identity, right? Whether it's Google or Facebook or random OpenID provider. So when you, so let's say you want to log into Stack Overflow. So you communicate to this, you know, you, you communicate this third party, which let's say Google. Say, hey, Google, I want to log into Stack Overflow. Google, you know, sends a special token to Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow says, okay, that sounds good. And then you come in. Uh, so if Google is down, now granted the concept of Google being down is pretty crazy. No, that's never really going to happen. Uh, but say you used random, you know, Joe's house of open ID. If Joe's house of open ID is down, you indeed will not be able to log into Stack Overflow. So from in that sense, it's a weakness. Uh, but it's also a strength in that, you know, you could potentially log into, you know, 15 or 20 different sites using Google, which is a fairly, very secure provider that's never going to expose your password. Um, so you're no longer beholden to, you don't have to remember 15 different passwords. Um, you have confidence that the provider is not going to fail you because it's Google, right? Or Facebook, or whoever it is you trust. Or the state of California. This is the same concept between, behind showing your driver's license. Like, okay, you go to rent a car. Well, how do they know you're Jeff Atwood? You could just say, hey, I'm Joe Smith. I'd like to rent a car, okay? Uh, well, you show some form of identity. And the reason the form of identity works is because people believe in the state of California, right? Oh, state of California, that's never going to go out of business, we hope. <laughs> right? right. Uh, <laughs> that's funny you bring that up now. <laughs> this is the analog that I'm trying to draw. And OpenID is just a, a method towards a solution. I want people to really understand that, like, I'm not saying OpenID is like, we must all pursue OpenID. Uh, I just want us to pursue something that is better than the horribly broken status quo. And that was kind of my political statement in choosing OpenID was like, look, we, we have to come up with a way to solve this identity problem. And the good news is there's really a lot of ways to solve it. My current thinking is that the, the browser has to absorb identity. Like this concept of actually the browser has to be in charge of your identity. Yeah, and because those, the, the problem with having this OpenID is essentially it's, it's centralized then, isn't it? It's kind of like the old Microsoft problem of just having everything centralized and one person controlling everything. If well, everyone's logging in through Google or Facebook everywhere well, then we're kind of at the mercy of that centralization. It is, but it's also in the sense that like, when I go to rent a car, I can show a passport or I can show my driver's license. So you might also make the argument, well, that sucks because I don't want to drive a car. I'm never going to have a driver's license. So the idea that you use your California driver's license is, is kind of restrictive to me. It forces me to drive a car or get a license, and I have no intention of driving a car, right? And say I live in New York City. What good does a driver's license do me in New York City? Not much. Um, so, so, should, so should it be, do you think it should be state-owned? I mean, do you think that there should be some kind of open ID system that's owned by the government that, that's hooked into your passport and that's how you can log onto websites? I think there needs to be diversity on identity providers, for sure. I think this idea that like everybody logs into everything with Facebook is incredibly scary. I, I've come to terms with Facebook as a thing. Like, I don't hate it as much as I used to. Um, I get it. I get what it's for. But the idea that like everybody just standardizes, oh, you just log in with Facebook is like, that's really unhealthy. 
Um, there are already sites that do this. Like the only way you can log in is through Facebook. And I find that very, very scary. And I would really urge everyone listening to this to really support uh, multiple login systems for their own, for the health of the internet. Uh, that's not a future that I really want a part of. Um, so I would agree I, with you I, on that. Any, anytime one group gets too much power, you're in trouble. Monopolistic power, you know, whatever, then, then that power gets abused and can be easily compromised because then it can control at one point, right? There's like one, um, was a, uh, one source of potential failure. And, um, if you have a problem, you know, whatever. Well, also it's, it's government. Like, I mean, Google is a commercial entity. Facebook's a commercial entity. The state of California is theoretically run by my tax dollars. Like I theoretically could be elected and run the state of California. Am I going to be elected to run Google? Probably Mm. not. So, I mean, I don't understand. Like, I, I wrote a, a, an entry about net neutrality and a lot of the really hardcore, and polit- I'm not very good at politics, so I apologize it's not correct, but like the libertarians came out when they're like, no, no, the government can't intervene in these things because we can't trust government. And I'm like, okay, but you're going to trust Facebook? <laughs> you know, like, okay, that's much scarier. Like, I get the government does bad things sometimes, but at least in theory... I can control and vote and control government. I have no control over Facebook. I don't yeah, but that. I mean, isn't that kind of the same thing? I mean, it seems like we each have about as much control over California as we do over Facebook. And I mean, you could, the chance that you oh, running Google God, is about as much chance of you being the governor of California, right? I mean, yeah, but fact, still, I might even put a higher probability on you being the, running Google than the state of California. I don't know. If I had to put my money the, on it. <laughs> I, I think you have to support government. I, the idea that you walk away from government entirely and say it doesn't work, we just have corporations running everything, it's just, I... No, I, I, think, I think you have problems either way. I think they both have their problems. I think you have but government... I, giving up on the vision problems. of government is really scary for me. Like the people who have done that, I don't, I don't get that. Because corporations absolutely are, cannot be trusted. I mean, well, of course they. I mean, just when when their primary motivation is is right. profit, it's That's, just obviously just, right. bad for you. Right. Well, I mean, nope. in, I mean, Google says don't be evil. Like, I have tremendous respect for Google. I think they do a great job, and they they at least say, hey, don't be evil is our corporate goal, which is nice. That goes a long way. But in government, the philosophy, the vision of government is okay. Look, this is we're doing the best for for the greater commonwealth, right? In fact, don't be evil is built into government, right? There's all these systems, these checks and balances, whereas corporations, I think, have none of that, you know? But it's, it's kind of a moot point because government is completely run and controlled by corporations anyway. Well, that's right. a good well, we, we don't need to that's go to politics here. I, I that's, what in, <laughs> that's what we call inverted totalitarianism, which is pretty much the case now. Yeah, right? yeah. So now we're fully into politics. So I apologize. That's completely my fault. But my only point is diversity in identity providers. That's really what I want to see. I want at least Coke and Pepsi at a minimum, right? So right, that's right. where I'm going with that. And open idea is just a means to an end. And I think for people who don't believe in it, you know, they're like, I love the status quo. They don't get open idea at all. They're like, oh, this is bullshit, right? But um, I, I think those people are really missing the forest for the trees. I want that problem to get solved, and I'm going to do everything I can personally to make sure that we move towards a solution, whatever it is. That's entirely the motivation. So, Justin, I have two quick questions I'd like to ask, because um, I know we're, we're probably running out of time here. And the first one um, is about, uh, you, you, when, uh, Jeff, when you and Joel went about raising money. And my first question is this. I mean, did bringing in venture capital to the Stack Overflow equation, did it, did it change? Did it have any sort of impact into your mission and what you guys are trying to do that um, was something you didn't expect or didn't work like you hoped it would? 
Well, the purpose of the money is just to press the hyperspace button. So before we had to right. really pick and choose the missions, right? We're a commando team. We have three people. We can only do these small missions, right? right. <laughs> Surgical missions. Uh, and once you have the venture capital, it's like, wow, we can have an army. <laughs> we can actually fight this battle on like 10 different fronts now. You know, we can do everything we wanted to do. And that's entirely the point. Um, I don't think it makes anything harder other than once you have an army, you have supply lines. You have, you know, majors and generals, and you have a whole infrastructure to support, right? So you have, what, 15 people working instead of three? So you've got about uh, five 15 times programmers, right? but at the company, there's like, like 25 people now. Okay. And how much money, is it public, how much you raised for, for the company? Uh, I don't like to comment on that because I'm not good at that stuff, and I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. It's on the blog. Just go to blog, okay. blog.stackoverflow and search for, you know, venture capital or... Stuff. Series A, there was Series A, and I think this is Series B. That's the canonical statement. I don't like to talk about it because I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. Okay, so one of the follow-up questions I have for this, and, and I don't know if you're going to be comfortable ask, ask, answering it, and if not, we can just uh, you know, not talk about it. But I, I heard that there was some kind of situation where one of, the, one of the VCs that you talked to tried to get in between you and Joel and, and, and kind of tried to you know, um, separate you and so they could maximize their position. Is that, did that actually happen? And, and how, you know, what, what was the story there? I think Joel is dramatizing that slightly. But I will say that... Um, but there's some truth to it. I mean, it's not quite as dramatic as Joel makes out. Um, right. But basically, there was just a VC that was like, oh, first step, replace Joel. And, and Joel was like, I don't like that plan. Surprisingly, <laughs> right? Right. Um, I don't agree with it either because I like Joel. I don't want to replace Joel. Joel's a great, I mean, he's, he's, I mean, Joel's not perfect. I'm not perfect. But I mean, Joel does a great job. Joel believes in the mission and he's, he's smart. And that's all I care about. So uh, obviously, I'm not going to get behind a plan that's like, you know, hey, let's screw Joel. Because that story seemed to coincide with Stack Overflow ending, and I, and I was wondering, was there any anything kind of Stack Overflow podcast? You mean? That, yeah, the podcast. Yeah. No, 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 no. There was absolutely no relationship there. That's purely just Joel not wanting to do the podcast anymore for the reasons I discussed earlier. That had nothing. Those those two things are definitely not related. Um, right. But that was the most dramatic of the VC stories, and it wasn't even really that dramatic. It was just this particular VC had the idea that the best way forward was to replace Joel. He's the and only VC that thought that for what's And that's, that's, that's the old VC story. That's what you classically think of VCs as doing. Oh, you, you young pups or you kind of immature business guys can't run a big business, so we're going to replace you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and, not, and like I said, not surprisingly, Joel was deeply offended that this guy would want to you know, rip him out. Right. So, right. I, mean, so I, you, I would so, too. And so that didn't affect your relationship. You guys recovered. It was not a problem. Because oh, no, 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 no. I mean, Joel and I have our arguments, to be sure. But in general, you know, we, we agree on, on, on the mission and the vision. And I think that's what binds us together is we have this deep belief in, in you know, fighting the evil of experts exchange and, you know, getting programmers to learn from each other and tricking them into being better communicators and extending that to the rest of the world. What would you do if experts, expert exchange got a clue and removed the paywall? And opened up everything. There is absolutely no chance of that happening, in my opinion. I think there's what, what? zero chance of that happening. But what what are they like? I mean, what kind of people are they? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're completely uh, opaque. I mean, really, they're so opaque. Like, I don't. And, and honestly, like, I don't think we compete uh, with experts exchange. It's not really our goal. We we make this. It's it's like professional wrestling. Okay, there's this battle between two wrestlers, but it's all just stage play. It's not like we're really fighting experts exchange. I only talk about it because it helps people understand what we do. Like it, it's really helpful to explain things in term of, terms of a mock conflict to people because they really get that, right? 
But then I have to put in the caution, like, look, it's not a real conflict. We're not actually, I'm not actually going to wrestle this guy to the ground and punch him until he passes out. We're just going to do this for your entertainment so that you can be amused. <laughs> not to get too political yet, but it sounds like the war on terrorism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, 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 it's, it's just there as an ex- explanatory device. Um, I have no grudges whatsoever towards expert exchange. However, I will say that they are extremely opaque like we've never really heard anything from them their community doesn't really talk to ours um they just do their thing man you know they have their thing that they're doing and they're going to continue to do it until the lights go out whenever that is sure so more power to the the last question i had um justin i don't know if you have any more but is um i wanted to one thing that you talked a little bit about on the show and i think we blogged a little bit about it is the scaling issues with with uh, stack overflow and that you started out and it was kind of like one server and then there was a big jump into having multiple servers. And I'd just be curious if you could maybe give us a little rundown of like the stages of scaling that you had to go through and, you know, sort of the story there. Because it seems like it'd be a really good learning, um, uh, a, a good story to learn from is, is how you scaled Stack Overflow from, from the beginning. Oh, sure. Well, I can give you the, the key piece of advice. The same piece of advice that we had a podcast with the Reddit guys mm-hmm. and they gave us the same advice. And I'm going to hand that advice down because it's so important. Uh, really quickly, you want to get to the I'm running on multiple servers state because that is like multi-threading. Basically, once you get to a state where you're cool with the idea that state is shared across multiple servers, which is pretty common for web apps. It's not like this is a crazy alien concept. I mean, threading in a traditional desktop app is so much more painful. But if you can just get used to the idea that you have state shared across a web farm of N servers and your code understands that and is aware of that, you're, you're pretty much good to go. But that's the only major architectural shift you will have to make. Um, the one that we may have to make at some point is this whole concept of sharding the database, where right now we're very much a big iron database uh, design, where we have one central, we have multiple databases, but Stack Overflow, for example, is, is running on one big-ass big database server. Um, at some point we may have to split that, and that's also going to be very, very painful. Uh, I would put that off because I think you have to be enormous before that happens. I mean, we're pretty large and we're still not there yet. What kind uh, of uh, what kind of server are you running your database on? Do you do you know what the spec specs of it are? Uh, well, the evolution of the database server, we went from you know two servers with four gigs each. Uh, that was in the way beginning. Then we had twelve gigs of memory. Then twenty four. Then forty eight. And now we're at like ninety six gigs of memory on the database server. And uh, it's, and it's, is that like an eight core or something like that? Yeah, well, well the, the beauty of it is hardware is so fast now. It's really, really easy. And the other thing that's really helping us is that solid-state hard drives are finally starting to get mainstream enough for servers, which means they have to be super mega reliable. Uh, Intel makes special... Uh, you have to be careful because there's MLC and SLC. Uh, the, 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 uh, the consumer side is MLC, and you don't want that on a server because it doesn't have the, the right reliability... So the SLC drives are quite reliable for servers, and that's what we use. So the SSDs have unlocked a lot of performance for us on the database side for the big iron stuff. I've got a question for you. On, on my web app, Plugio, all of the data that, you, that each user sees is just their own little silo. So it's not quite like Stack Overflow where everyone is seeing everyone else's data. So given that scenario, what you're talking about uh, moving to multiple servers, which I think I would kind of like to start doing, do you think that I need to... Um, should I basically just silo each server and then basically send one set of users to one server, one set of users to another server, or do you think I should kind of join things up at the back end with the database and use one database? What would what would be your approach? Uh, 
I guess the decision to make there is about the data, the data segmenting. If you can get away with having users all of their data private to a server on you know a little like say you're running MySQL on each server, that is way way more scalable. Uh, but then you know scalability is one of the things where like it's a premature optimization. You know if you can write cleaner code by having one centralized database, that might be a better trade off for your brain right now. With this idea that I'm never you know I'm never going to have two million users. Yeah. I don't know. You don't want to prematurely optimize, but I will say that in our case, if you get to be web scale where you're really having you know, millions and millions of page views per day, it's splitting state across web servers. That's fairly easy. And then splitting state across database servers, which is much, much harder. Uh, and we haven't quite done that yet. Um, but don't, don't prematurely optimize either. I mean, I guess that's the other risk. I mean, you can get on modern hardware, you can write really, you know, really simple code that scales to many, many thousands of users without trying very hard. Yeah, I mean, I'm still not even, basically for my PHP installation, I'm still, it's still just parsing every page. I don't even have a cache on that yet. So (laughs) that's how behind I am. Exactly. I mean, you know, why optimize things that don't need to be optimized quite yet? But um, that is the key piece of advice. If you think you're going to get really large, scale to web-facing servers, uh, share state, and also start splitting your database across multiple servers. So Jason, um, I think that, that this has been an awesome show. And, yeah, it's uh, been great. great. We, yeah, I think we've 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 uh, done our time. Well, Jeff, it, yeah, Jeff, it was it was great to actually talk to you in person. I was a big, like I said, I was a big fan of uh, Stack Overflow podcast. I look forward to the weekly discussions. I miss it. Yeah, <laughs> so me too. You guys, so, totally. Hoping you guys come back. Um, it might come back. There's rumblings. We'll see. You, you know, even if you figure out a different format, you know, um, you know, I, I could see why talking about Stack Overflow week in and week out might have um, got repetitive for you, but it was just miss. It was it was fun listening to you guys just talk about software. Hey, man, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was all that, that decision was all Joel. I actually kind of well, protested that decision. Just talk about what's interesting. I mean, if 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 stuff's moved on for Joel and he, and there's other stuff that's interesting, then I talk about that. I mean, then it won't get repetitive and it won't be boring. Yeah. Well, Joel's yeah. coming around. I think he's had enough time away that. He's getting the itch again and has some ideas. Yeah, tell him his sabbatical is nearing it's over. It's time. We're ready, Joel. Come back. <laughs> I don't have enough stuff to listen to. That's right. So, well, anyway, Jeff, like I said, it was great. It was great meeting you. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. And we wish you the best of luck with uh, Stack Exchange and Stack Overflow and uh, all the other uh, manifestations of that mission because it's really great stuff that you've done. Oh, thank you very much. All right. That's a wrap. We're out. Okay, good. Feel free to edit. Like, I don't mind. I don't know how much editing you guys do. That was the other thing with Joel and I's podcast was we didn't really do any editing. So it's, it's we don't really just a little bit. I'll just I try and I'll, uh, the only thing I edit is whenever I sound like an idiot, which is uh, quite a lot. Well, I'm open to being <laughs> edited as long as you don't edit me to say something crazy. Oh gosh, oh gosh. I don't know. I was in maybe sixth grade. I was pretty young. I think I'm a little bit odd. <laughs>